0: Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottle, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast, is for you.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Best Practices and Human Resources podcast. My name is Brenda Neckbottle. I am known as Brenda, the HR Lady. It's great to have you guys. This is a little bit of a departure from normal programming. Uh, it's, you know, life happens after you plan it. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. So I'm running around doing a little bit of necessary travel. Taking care of uh, you know some emergencies, family emergencies. These things come up, and of course, it's a little bit more complicated in a COVID environment. But nonetheless, we've got a really, really great interview for you guys. I'm excited to uh, to really get Jeff on the line and talk to you guys. You're gonna enjoy this. We're gonna be back to our regular programming next week. As a matter of fact, we've got a couple awesome podcast episodes coming up that I'm really, really excited about. And looking forward to. Um, so just want to give a shout out to our friends over at Naked Warrior Recovery. I'm telling you, you know, being on the road and dealing with the stressful things that come with having to take care of elderly parents, which is exactly what I'm doing right now. Um, I got to tell you, it's pretty nice to be able to pop a gummy (laughs) at the end of the day. CBD is awesome. No THC. Check them out. If you guys want to try any of their products at Naked Warrior Recovery, Dot .com don't just type in naked warrior cuz you're not going to like what you get on Google I promise it's www.nw-recovery.com I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly that's the website and uh, you can actually use naked hr and get 20% off on your first purchase so I love the CBD gummies you know flying all over the place it definitely helps address all of the stress and the tension and the inflammation Uh, That comes with, you know, being outside of your normal routine and element or getting smacked around by your normal routine and element. So definitely check them out. Awesome products. Want to make sure we get a plug in there uh, because I'll tell you what, when life happens, it's nice to have a couple of things to fall back on that you can rely on. So enjoy the podcast episode. Like I said, folks, we're going to be back to our normal programming next week and I look forward to catching up with you guys then.
2: There are approximately 2,500 members of the US Special Operations community who transition out of active duty military service every single year. The Honor Foundation's dedicated its mission to serving these elite individuals on their journey to prepare for life once they take off the uniform. In the past few years, we've begun our own journey to reach this number, launching three physical campuses in San Diego, California, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and near Wilmington, North Carolina, along with a virtual campus to reach members of the community anywhere on the planet. I spent 26 years in the special operations community as a SEAL. I graduated from THS program, I served on the board of directors, and now I'm proud to lead this organization into the future to continue assisting these transitioning service members and their families. Our dedicated team, our world-class program, and our incredible tribes of supporters are standing by to help THF alumni and future fellows, and are committed to providing the best possible support system and resources to better serve this community. Our vision for the Honor Foundation is clear, to impact every transitioning service member from the US Special Operations Enterprise through our programs and support and to be a catalyst for overhauling the entire DOD transition program. It's a big task, but the community deserves it, and we're driving full steam ahead to make this a reality. If you've been inspired with what the Honor Foundation's done in the last five years, I welcome you all to join us as we craft the next chapter in defining what it means to serve others with honor for life.
1: Guys, we have an amazing guest joining us by the name of Jeff Wald. Uh, He is the author of The End of Jobs and has got a really interesting perspective as it pertains to the rise of on demand workers and agile corporations. Welcome. How are you?
0: I am doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, thank you for being on. This is great. So, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came into this uh, conversation.
0: So I've had the pleasure, Brenda, of starting a number of tech companies. Uh, First one failed miserably and almost bankrupted me. The second one we built up and eventually got sold to Salesforce. So pretty good outcome. And the most recent is a company called Work Market. Work Market is enterprise software that enables companies to manage their freelance population. We raised about hundred million in venture capital from SoftBank and Union Square Ventures and a few others. And we sold the company to ADP Uh, three years ago, ADP being, of course, the world's largest HR and human capital management software company. And because of the sale to ADP, I finally had the space to finish this book that I had been writing for five years prior to ADP. I had started writing the book about to try to debunk myths about the on-demand economy and to use actual data and to use history on the on-demand economy, because that's where work market played. And I had uh, the opportunity to speak to a thousand plus C suite executives about their labor force transformation as it related to on demand labor. And as I started putting pen to paper, I guess seven or eight years ago now, it morphed into a book on the future of work. And what can we do by studying history, by studying data and data patterns, and by studying and having conversations with the people that are actually doing labor resource planning, how companies actually engage workers, how can we use that body of evidence to make more thoughtful predictions about the future of work?
1: And what has your conclusions and your data reveal?
0: Well, the conclusion reveals that it's not so simple. And I would say-
1: (laughs) I love that answer.
0: The overarching message is, that I hope people walk away with is, to be skeptical and to use your critical thinking whenever you hear anybody make predictions Mm -hmm. about the future of work, but to be skeptical when you hear simplistic predictions. Because the labor markets are not simple. Labor resource planning is not simple. People have this general view that labor resource planning meetings happen like this. CEO walks in and she says, what are we going to do about our workers? I want to screw them and I want the cheapest workers. And everyone goes, okay, we're on it. And she says, meeting adjourned. People that think that's how labor resource planning works. No, it isn't. No, People are incredibly thoughtful about how they deploy workers, how they deploy capital and history data and how companies actually engage workers have a lot of very important lessons for us, industry by industry and function by function.
1: So how long have you been studying this?
0: I would say hard focus study, about seven years, Uh, inclusive of the time at work market. It's been, I guess, about 11 years.
1: So coming into 2020, uh, what was the biggest shift that you saw right when the whole COVID pandemic hit?
0: I would actually say this. The biggest shift that the data told us was there was no big shift. And that's another important takeaway. Labor statistics move very slowly. They move very methodically. And one of the biggest things that I wanted to debunk was this idea that by 2020, 50% of the labor force is gonna be on demand. That's what everybody was saying in 2010 when I founded Work Market. Mm -hmm. That was the statement in every conference, every article on on on-demand labor. And I kept thinking, who started this? Where are you getting this? This makes no sense. This has a 0% probability of coming true. Why is everybody saying it? And as I started to unpack that, I started to see that people get pretty lazy And somebody makes a prediction, everybody runs with it. And if that prediction feeds into an existing narrative, it runs all the quicker. And so the biggest prediction, the biggest movement in the world of work is that there are no big movements in the world of work. There just aren't.
1: It's funny. I love how you say that going back to the predictions. And because when I was at SHRM, it was SHRM 17. Yeah, I was in Orlando and I was at 15. I was in Orlando. Who did Sherman Orlando? Anyway, I sat in on a conference. I sat in on this on this lecture and he made the craziest prediction that something like 55% of the workforce was going to be working from home. And <laughs> like I looked up and went, what? <laughs> it's like that doesn't make sense. And he's talking about like this happening in 2025. And I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense.
0: It that makes I- Zero sense, Zero sense is whatsoever. ridiculous, it's like, unintelligent, possible. Yeah. it is actually impossible because only 42% of the U S workforce can work remotely, right? People clearly in yeah. manufacturing and extraction yes. industries and logistics and transportation yes. and entertainment, 58% of the workforce can't work from home. And so no. people that make predictions that when the simplest data points are presented, they have no defensibility, That is infuriating to me. That person should have been booed off stage and run out of town.
1: So I have a question for you. Now, what is your thoughts and your perceptions on the conversation around AI Mm -hmm. taking over in the tech area, Mm -hmm. specifically with uh, actually kind of reclaiming blue-collar jobs Mm -hmm. in manufacturing?
0: So here's, here's what I would say. There's a lot we can learn from history here and data and how companies engage workers. And let's start with history. The thing is Brenda, the robots and AI are what a lot of people would call the fourth industrial revolution. An industrial revolution is a time when a new technology comes on stream, that's productivity increases are so great that it fundamentally alters the supply and demand balance that existed between workers and companies. And companies, workers and society need to renegotiate their contracts. That's what an industrial revolution is. And it's happened three times, mechanization, electrification and computerization. And understanding how companies, workers and society came together in the face of those tremendous changes to me is the place you have to start when you're gonna start talking about what robots and AI are gonna do. And here's what we learned from history. There are basically three phases to the industrial revolutions. The first is the freak out phase. And we are deep in the freak out phase. I mean, we are deep in that. And in the freak out phase. areas. Is, yeah. Oh, my God. All the jobs are going to go. Everybody's screwed. Yeah. Society's going to fall. And, yeah. you know, we get through that phase. And then we get into the economic and social dislocation phase. And that is when jobs actually do start to go. And you see workers and industries and job functions and geographies that are substantially impacted, disproportionately impacted, because they tend to be, the automation changes that come tend to focus very specifically on job functions, very specifically in some industries. And then we get to the reality phase. And the reality phase is where we end up and every single time we end up with more jobs, higher standards of living and people working fewer hours. Those are very, very clear trends, almost uninterrupted through the Mm -hmm. history of work. And so when we look at the fourth industrial revolution, it's easy to say, oh, the robots are coming. All jobs are going to go. That would be one of those simplistic conclusions that Mm -hmm. I want people to be very wary of and say, "Okay, which jobs are going to go? When? Why do you think those jobs are going to go? Because there will definitively be some jobs that go. And those are jobs that are in repetitive, high-volume tasks. Those jobs historically do go. But when do they go? How quickly will they go? And in what industries they're going to go? Those are important things to know. And what jobs are going to be created? Mm-hmm. Because I have no doubt that we will end up with more jobs, higher standard of living, and people working fewer hours. And we can walk through rationales. We can walk through anecdotes. We can walk through data patterns. But those are the things that when you do that, critical thinking and analysis, when you spend your free time reading all of the different reports, sadly, which is what I do, those are the conclusions you come to. Not a, oh my God, the robots are coming and all the jobs are
1: yeah, gone." The rise of Skynet's gonna hit. <laughs>
0: I will tell you this, one of my team members at Work Market, a younger team member, when I presented uh, my findings as the book was being published, I have the Rosie Jetson scenario and the Skynet scenario. <laughs> and i was you know taking questions from the from the team and one person said you know i just I my first question is who's rosie jetson and what is skynet and i was like you little mother
1: <laughs> you have no Don't make me
0: feel old get out of here
1: that should be part of his orientation
0: it really okay. should be we should make people watch the jetsons and make people watch terminator as part of their orientation to work market sadly i'm not a part of the work market team anymore so not my decision but my next company. That is going to be a part of orientation. That and Coming to America, which was another one.
1: Oh, that, another great classic.
0: It's a classic. The modern Absolutely classics. These kids classic. aren't watching the modern classics. What yeah. are they doing on TikTok? I don't understand it.
1: I don't know. That great classic right there. It is awesome. So now, you know, if I was listening to you, I, I I, fully agree, even though I haven't done the studies, just logically things, there's just some things that just don't add up. Right? I cannot imagine seeing detroit being completely automated automated to a point yeah i can see ai coming in in certain areas in auto manufacturing but i think where ai would be a massive disruptor is if a manufacturing operation were to open in a smaller town or an area with a fewer population less Mm -hmm. reduced population and or they or an existing operation would actually revert and bring in more ai where there is less opportunity for the local job market to actually earn a you know a decent living i could see that absolutely being a disruptor but i don't see it being a disruptor across the board and there's a lot of people that actually think that ai is going to completely take over the hr realm and i'm like i don't see how that's possible
0: i don't see that Look, in the long term, anything's possible. In the near term, the next five years, hard no. In the medium term, I I struggle to understand a logical, reasonable, defensible case. HR specifically is an industry where the repetitive high volume tasks are such a small part of each of the different job functions. Now, payroll entry, Mm -hmm. yeah, that job has some significant pressure to it. But the HR generalists, the benefits specialists, the HR leadership, no, 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 and no, right? they the number of repetitive high volume tasks in their job are so small that some of the tasks will get automated by different HR technologies, but the vast majority will not. Right. So it's that re- the prevalence of the repetitive high volume tasks as the component tasks of a job, which are super important. But let's, instead of going into that, let me throw an example at you. Let's talk about autonomous vehicles and trucking. Oh, please. (laughs) Let me dive in. I I
1: drove from Virginia to California. And the big question that I got was, did you see any unmanned trucks? And I'm like, if I saw an unmanned truck, I would be on the other side of the street. I would not (laughs) want to be near that thing. So no, I did not. But yeah, I would love to hear this.
0: Let me ask you this, Brenda. I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah, go ahead. Ask you a question. First, the predicate. There are 3 million people that are professional truck drivers in the United States, mm-hmm. heavy and light trucks. So the tractor trailers and the vans, if you will. Right. If I were to ask you in 10 years' time, how many people will be employed in that job function in the United States? There are 3 million today. Mm-hmm. What would your guess be?
1: I honestly don't know. Would it remain okay. 3 million?
0: I would say that it's probably 3.1 to 3.2 million. And when I ask this question at conferences, and you know, now they're virtual conferences, so I ask them and I say throw your answer into the Zoom chat. The Zoom answers come flying, right? 1 million, 500,000, none, 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 none. No. And I'm like, okay, that's super interesting. And that is that simplistic conclusion, that simplistic prediction. Autonomous vehicle, therefore truck drivers go. But let's peel it back, right? The autonomous vehicle is not road ready yet.
1: No, now, it is not.
0: <laughs> it is not. Now, if you talk to people at Waymo and at Tesla and at other people, other places that are building autonomous vehicles, they would say they're five years away from road ready. If you rewound the clock and look at what they said five years ago, they said they were five years away. So... Look, will they be ready in five years? Maybe, I would bet no. I would make the statement that there's an argument to be made that they're never road ready by the way, that the tech never gets there, but I won't, I don't believe that, but an argument could be made. So let's give them the five years. Let's say it's five years. Once the vehicle itself is road ready and we understand exactly how the vehicle is gonna function and that's important because it means we can't parallel process. We have to begin, the next sequential process is the road has to be ready. So we can't go and build the infra- repair infrastructure and the censoring infrastructure until we know exactly how the car is going to be road ready, because we won't know what centers and repair infrastructure are needed. So then you begin a process of putting censoring technologies on every single mile of highway in the United States. You have to put repair infrastructure because it's not like the autonomous vehicle, if it breaks a camshaft, if it pops a tire, can just pull into an Exxon station and honk its horn. Nobody, It's going to need specific repair infrastructure for the autonomous vehicle and then there are the regulations yeah what happens if the car goes damaged what happens if it's hijacked what happens if the car hits the truck hits somebody i would give you my best case scenario that's another 10 years and then you have to then go and buy all those trucks so let's look at Knight swift the largest trucking company in the united states of america they spend about 500 million dollars a year on capex Let's give the benefit of the doubt that they will spend half of that on vehicle replacement. They don't, but let's Mm -hmm. say that they do. And let's say an autonomous truck is $150,000 each. That to me is a ridiculously low estimate, but let's say it is. It would take Knight Swift 10 years to replace their entire 18,000 truck fleet. So now you pull five years and 10 years and another 10 years, and you're 25 years out in really the best case scenario. And so... The story of trucking in the United States is that there are tens of thousands of open positions in trucking in industry or in a job function where somebody with minimal education can earn a middle class wage. And so why do we have a gap? We have a gap because people are out there going, oh, my God, don't go into trucking because it's a dead end job. No, it is not in the long term. Yes. But that long term is a very far way out in the medium term limited to i would say no job losses in trucking even though it is an industry and a job function that has a very high susceptibility to automation that's just one example to think about and again to to fight against that simplistic conclusion of oh autonomous vehicles all truck drivers are gone no be thoughtful
1: yeah so let me ask you a question so with your research i mean our job market is really strange right now and no two industries are alike as it pertains to being able to find the required talent the capable talent the wannabe talent right mm-hmm. what is your what is your data saying in correlation to what we're seeing in the market in the job marketplace right now
0: well i think your point is very well taken and it's one that people outside of our world don't really get. And there's not some monolithic labor market. There's not some monolithic series of trends and oh, on-demand labor is growing. Okay, it is growing slowly and steadily, Mm -hmm. but very differently in different industries and different job functions. So the question becomes in different industries, in different geographies, what are we seeing? And, And look, the broad statement is jobs that are highly technical STEM jobs, if you will, there is still a supply and demand imbalance in a lot of those job functions. The most you know, obvious ones would be a blockchain analyst or a cybersecurity analyst or AI researchers, machine language researchers, data analysts. Those jobs still have huge supply and demand imbalances. The education system has not caught up. We have a lot of people that want to hire and we do not have enough people in that space. We are also seeing somewhat of that, and the pandemic has certainly impacted this, in what I would call the hard human positions. So the hard tech positions, very clear, the hard human positions, positions revolving creativity and design and empathy and human connection and customer service touch points, customer interaction touch points. Those jobs are predicted to grow. Those jobs have specific skill sets, those jobs supply and demand imbalances, not as heavy, but it is beneficial to the worker because the job category, the job functions are going to continue to grow. It is that ground in the middle that are repetitive, high volume tasks that if you're a worker worker in that space, you have a massive supply and demand issue. Mm -hmm. There are more workers that can do that job than there are jobs, and those jobs are declining. In their raw numbers of jobs, and so you already have a supply and demand imbalance, and because there are more workers than there are jobs, and the number of jobs are decreasing, and so that's an area to be very mindful of in terms of your upskilling and your reskilling.
1: That's interesting. <clears throat> yeah, there's so there's been such a huge shift with COVID right now. Um, I mean, it was it was interesting to begin with. And now it's even more interesting with, uh, you know, a lot of jobs that have opened up in the area that in the multiple areas that help keep our supply chain moving forward, our current status of living, you know, I mean, in, you know, the food delivery service has just skyrocketed. Amazon's independent delivery services has skyrocketed. E-commerce has skyrocketed, Right.
0: They have for now.
1: They're for now, yes, for exactly. Now. For now,
0: right? We've had this tech acceleration in oh, digital payments. Oh, that's a good payments. word. Oh, I wish I could take claim. for Oh, it. I like I the word
1: tech acceleration. That's awesome. Oh,
0: tech wow, we'll, we'll tell anybody? <laughs> yeah, you can. You can attribute it to me. You just keep using it. Jeff Wald <laughs> came up with this term. Whoo, man, that guy's smart. Um, so we've had this tech acceleration, digital payments, digital currencies, digital commerce, digital workplace. They've all accelerated. We will have a snapback. We don't know how big the snapback is going to be in our post-COVID world. God willing, soon there will be a snapback. We don't know what it will be. And so have we seen more at home food delivery just to pick on that industry for a second? Unquestionably, has employment moved there Mm -hmm. as people that lost their jobs in retail and entertainment and other industries have they gone to become uber drivers and doordash drivers and and lyft and postmates and instacart yes no question more people are consuming that way there are two things to think about one is that snapback as people go back to malls and go back to stores and go back to restaurants they simply will not consume as much food via delivery than they are now they will consume more than they did before that i accept I have no idea what the data is on this, but let's say we ate 15% of our meals via delivery before we're up to 90% now or whatever it is, it will go not go back to 15, but it's not going to stay at 90. No. It's not. So that's one thing to think about in terms of employment. The second is how much of those changes are structural changes, leaving outside the increased incidence of usage. There were delivery people before this, but they weren't organized In a DoorDash context, in a Postmates context, in an Instacart context, they were usually recent immigrants, sometimes people off the books and undocumented, who were just riding their bikes from place to place. At least that was the experience in New York City, Mm -hmm. right? Like you'd see these men and women and they were doing the delivery work. Now the delivery work is more organized and it's formalized because I would be willing to bet, and I don't have any data on this, that a lot of those men and women, recent immigrants, undocumented, were being paid cash under the table. Now they're being paid at 1099. So was, is there a structural shift in the labor market or are we moving gray market transactions into the formal economy?
2: Mm.
0: I would say we're moving gray market transactions to the formal economy is the preponderance of that movement. Again, some incremental movement, but for people to sit back and say, oh, DoorDash and Postmates that's a fundamental change. No, it isn't, at least not yet.
1: No, I think too. So California really made a significant attempt under FLSA standards to convert Uber drivers and and drivers in this gig economy to a W-2 employee, which by the definition just didn't make sense, which was interesting. So I think once we start, whenever we reopen back up to maybe mid to full, mid to near full capacity. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a significant drop in gig economy again.
0: We will. I I agree with that. And to your point, the regulatory environment, I would argue is the biggest driver of those things. So we know what California tried to do with ab five. And to say, hey, these workers should be employees. And then we saw what happened with Prop 22 in California, where the people of California basically said, I'd rather not wait another two minutes for my Uber driver or pay $5 more. Uh, and I'd rather have the worker be taken advantage of a little bit. I'm OK with that trade. So, OK, that's what people said. I'm not sure I agree with uh, the conclusion of the voters in California. and I'm not sure I agree with the conclusions of the legislators in California. So I think Prop 22 went too far one way. I think AB5 went too far the other. But the point that we should take away from this is how powerful regulation is as a driver Mm -hmm. in the labor markets and specifically the on-demand labor markets. So this idea that 50% of the workforce was going to be on demand that people were propagating many years ago, regulation was the first reason that that was never going to come true. Just never. Now, will Prop 22 lead to other states being more liberal with their interpretations of FLSA and how it applies to work on misclassification? Maybe. I think it's highly unlikely. And and we'll see, because here's one thing I know. Everybody has this notion. I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people have this notion. That again, that labor resource planning meeting of, hey, we should variableize all of our labor and use gig workers. That some CEO, CEO walked into her staff meeting on Monday morning and said, hey, I just took this thing Uber. We should do that with our workforce. Yeah, that has never happened. No, Nobody's ever made work. that statement.
1: No.
0: But he, so, and let me tell you something. If they had said it and said, hey, we need to turn all of our W twos into ten ninety nines, I would get that phone call. As the founder of WorkMarket and the leader of that company and the piece of software that helps companies manage their 1099 workforces, I would have gotten that phone call. And we never got that phone call. We would get the phone call of, we currently use 3,000 1099s, and we don't know who's where, who signed what legal agreement, who's working on what, who's good at what. And so our software was brought in to bring organization to existing chaos. We never got the, hey, we want to transform our labor force and switch it. But here's the call, Brenda, that I did get a lot which is I'm currently using a lot of 1099s, and so I may need your software, but I'm getting very uncomfortable with the regulatory environment. I think I'm going to convert them to W-2s. That call, I got a lot. Yeah. Well, people saying, oh, I'm getting uncomfortable because of AB5, because of whatever recent decision against Uber, and I'm going to convert people from 1099s to W-2s. Never got the, I'm converting W-2s to 1099s call. Never got it.
1: No, no, I've gotten that call. <laughs> it's a bad call to get. It's yeah. not, not one you want to, not one you want to deal with. Well, let me ask you a question. So if you, what is the biggest predictor that you see coming down the pike in 21 or 22?
0: So the biggest change to the labor force that we can have a high degree of confidence in predicting is in remote work. And anybody okay. that makes any predictions outside of that one, and we'll walk through some data and why I'm even comfortable making that prediction. But anyone making predictions about robots and AI and increased adoption rates because of COVID, anyone making predictions about on-demand labor and changes that might come because of COVID, until we see the snapback to this tech acceleration, I'd be very wary of making those predictions. I wanna see two or three quarters of increased capital expenditures going towards robotic process automation software or machines or robots before I'm comfortable making predictions about the next 20 years. Because there have been substantive changes and we don't know how they're gonna play out. But with remote work, shocking nobody, I'm gonna start with history and some data. And the history is 1.5% of the workforce was working remotely in 2010. And remote work, by the way, we need to be clear about definitions. Remote work means more than 50% of the time you are not in that office. Okay. right, less, you know, Upwards of 50% of the time, not in that office, you just have a flexible work arrangement. Once you pass that 50% threshold, there are important infrastructure consequences. Company doesn't need to allocate you square footage. You can just hot desk or hotel desk. And there are important tax nexus implications. So where are you going to be taxed? So the more than 50% of time definition of remote work, and that's all we track. We don't track flexible work arrangements well enough. It went from 1.5% of labor force to 3% of labor force from 2010 to 2020. Those are st- those are statistics that we know. And the reason that it grew is because of technologies like WebEx and Zoom and all these things and Asana and Basecamp and Monday project management softwares that allowed for the disaggregation of work. And they were powerful. If we had had this conversation a year ago, I would have made the statement over the next 10 years, we'll go from 3% to 4%. Because those <laughs> technologies... They've hit, there's no new technologies that are gonna substantively change remote work. And importantly, there are two huge impediments to further usage of remote work. One is the mindset. And we all know that boss that said, oh, I don't care about all the studies say, and all the studies will tell us that remote workers are happier, they're healthier, they're more productive, they're more engaged, they have lower attrition rates, they are cost the company less, they cost the worker less. This boss would say, I don't care about those studies. I think presence equals productivity. I think magic happens when people are in the office together. So mindset was the first big impediment to continued growth of the remote growth of the remote workforce. But second was infrastructure's policies and procedures. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to say, Brenda, no problem. You can work from home. Mm-hmm. It's another to make sure you can access every single system when you're outside yep. of our four walls. Mm-hmm. It's another to make sure that there are to pick a policy uh, at random. There are default remote meeting options for every single meeting, not, oh, wait a minute, Brenda's not here, we need to throw a Zoom into the invite, but that there's one default in there. And that's a simple thing, but it's very important yep. if you're gonna enable your remote workforce. And both of those things had to change in March of 2020. You didn't have a choice. Mindsets, out the window. I don't care what your mindset is, nobody's coming to the office. And infrastructures, policies, procedures, they all had to be put in place. And so at the height of the pandemic, 40% of the US workforce was working remotely. 42%, as we discussed earlier, was the natural limit in the United States. So when we think about, to answer your very long-winded answer to your question, <laughs> the big predictor in 21 and 22, that remote workforce, when we look at what management teams want, when we look at what employees want, when we look at job functions and which can be done remotely, We start to see around 8% of the U.S. workforce will work remotely, remembering that remote means more than 50% of the time. Right. You ask me flexible work arrangements, and we look at what managers want and what employees want, you start to see 32, 33% of the U.S. workforce will have a uh, flexible work arrangement. And so the vast majority of that 42% that can work remote. And so we will see how this all really plays out but that's where we have a lot of survey data that's where we've seen the big impediments get washed away and therefore we have a lot of confidence in making predictions other areas i can always take a guess but they would be guesses because we don't have data yet
1: i think that's very interesting this is really neat so so what got you into this to begin with Amila? what made you fascinated about this
0: well You know, I was running work market, and so I had to spend my days thinking about on-demand work. And what was the impediment, uh, the impetus to write the book was annoyance, Mm. was frustration of going to these conferences and hearing people talk and going, that's a ridiculous statement. How are you allowing this person on stage? And thinking, all right, we need frameworks I'm a data guy, I also went to business school, and business schools are very focused on frameworks. And the framework that I came up with was history, data, and how companies engage workers. And if we study those, and we look at the world of work through that lens, we have a much higher probability that our predictions are gonna come true as opposed to simplistic conclusions. Okay. And so it was annoyance and frustration, which is what drives me to do a lot of things. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's good. Well, that's awesome. So how can people find you in a copy of their book, copy of your book? Excuse me.
0: <clears throat> so I'd love to say that you can go uh, to any of the great bookstores here around the United States and and take a stroll in and, and have a have a have a cappuccino and, and buy the book. Unfortunately, not many of us are in the circumstance where we can do that right now. But uh, there's this online seller, Amazon, that uh, I recently found that uh, does a, a great job of selling the book. And we were fortunate enough to hit number one, of all of Amazon's HR categories. And so.
1: Oh, wow. The book is,
0: the book is certainly on Amazon right now uh, and wherever else fine books are sold online. And then in terms of reaching out, I'm always happy to connect and talk about the future of work via LinkedIn. Uh, or on Twitter, Twitter's the one place that I go by Jeffrey Wald. I was not able to get Jeff Wald at Jeffrey at Jeff Wald. I have at Jeffrey Wald, and so I always tweet about uh, great articles that I'm seeing on HR, HR tech, and the future of work.
1: Very good. Well, thank you so very much for coming on. This has just been really enlightening.
0: Would you say top ten?
1: I would say top ten for oh, sure. Oh, I'll take it. I'd say we'll do top 10 on that. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Brenda, this has been so fun. You're such an engaging, fun uh, interviewer. I really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to, uh, to staying in touch.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.